Hello, I'm Bill Redman. And I'm Tony Faust. Welcome to Odin and Aesop, the podcast where we review military history books to help understand the events and ideas of the past. Some of these events and ideas still shape our world today. If you're interested in learning more about the show, want to get a hold of us, or provide some feedback, just visit our website where we've got links to related material and contact information. Just Google Odin and Aesop, all one word. We'd love to hear from you. You can also follow us on Twitter. In episode 11 of the Odin and Aesop podcast, we will review Ed Rosario's book, The First Men In. The book provides readers a detailed description of the 82nd Airborne Division's fight to secure Sam Maraglis and the causeways leading to and from Utah Beach. Rosario walks the book's readers through the first 72 hours of the 82nd Airborne's fight in Normandy. The book is packed with both tactical and technical information that provides readers a real insight into what it was like to conduct a nighttime parachute assault and then go into the fight. In addition, the author provides personal anecdotes he obtained by interviewing many of the battle's participants to add depth to his description of the action. The descriptions of the engagements that take and hold the causeways were particularly interesting given the lack of books covering these important fights. The book is highly recommended if you're interested in the U.S. airborne fight in Normandy. I am really excited about tonight's topic and have been looking forward to the discussion for a couple of weeks now. However, before Bill and I get started, we would like to introduce a new member to the podcast, Kevin Yo. Kevin, please introduce yourself to the listeners and tell us what you've been up to over the last couple of weeks. All right. Kevin Yo, retired Marine. Uh, youngest of seven, I, I left the cattle and the cornfields of South Dakota for the Marines uh, to see the world. Uh, then went from private to major. But, you know, I, I wasn't raised by dolphins or, or wolves or anything like that. So, Tony, I, I think what the listeners really care about is, is what I'm bringing to the conversation that makes me different than a few thousand other retired Marine officers. So on the enlisted time, I was in the avionics first. Then I went to Pakistan as an embassy guard, a couple years there. But then I switched over to the dark side, the officer path. And, and I think everyone's pretty familiar with that TBS, fleet, B-billet schools. But I, I didn't do that. Now, there may be others, but I think I'm the only one I know that spent 14 years straight in infantry battalions without a break. Not only that, but I joined 1-8 during peacetime at a time when the computers and the digital age was really just coming into the fleet. And and so then I filled billets in 1-8 and 2-8 for 12 straight years, going from platoon commander through the billets up to rifle company, H&S company, S2, S3 Alpha, S3, You know, whatever I had to do to fill some billets and and stay in the fleet during these deployments. So I deployed multiple times, did the Muse, did the Okinawa, did the Caxes, Bridgeports, a couple of NEOs, uh, went to Iraq. Uh, My last billet was as an I&I instructor with uh, 124 out of Michigan. And I was lucky enough to help them prepare for a deployment to Iraq. Of the things looking back, uh, interesting billets that I had was one was the Marine Corps Urban Warrior Experiments. And then, of course, my rifle company commander time in Iraq. That, with my activities since the Corps in the police department, hunting guide, teacher, ditch digger, uh, all kind of matches up to maybe make my observations somewhat entertaining or, or thought-provoking to our listeners. So I'm currently uh, 
semi-retired in the villages, Florida. And when I'm not working on my golf game, I've been trying to put together a book about training. So let me ask you a quick question, Kevin. What would you consider in terms of military history kind of your strong suit? What areas do you think you are particularly well-read? Probably something that, that a lot of people don't think about was the World War One in Africa. I, I've really enjoyed that subject because it gives a precursor, if you will, to a lot of things World War Two and, and into the future. They don't do the trench warfare. There's a lot of more maneuver there, a lot of self-sufficiency on the commands. I would say I probably have read more about that than uh, a lot of the other areas. Interesting. I would have thought you would have said Indian Wars. Yeah. Indian Wars, I, I've read a lot about Cook and, and the different times. And, and, of course, I grew up in the, on the prairies and in the South Dakota area. No, I, I think the, the East Africa and, and that is probably the more, more interesting for me. Well, that'll be interesting because I always like to listen to different perspectives on how you bring other eras into different times and how you can compare and contrast that and how you see the flow of technology, tactics, techniques, and procedures over time. So that kind of obscurity in terms of the fights that were going on in Africa during World War I and how that translates into future stuff will be interesting to bring out as we as we move forward. So Anyways, welcome to the show. A little update. Kevin, myself, and Bill were all company commanders in the Mighty 1-8 together for a couple of years. And we've been talking to Kevin for months now about potentially coming on and uh, joining the podcast. So we're really happy to have you here, Kevin, and and, um, know that it's going to make the show a little bit better. So Bill, what have you been doing in the Northern Virginia area, so I don't get scolded like last episode for saying D.C. You know, quite honestly, I ain't got a whole lot going on in life right now. I think the high points are um, sweeping paving stone sand and uh, trying to get it right. So, yeah, things have been pretty slow here in the in, in the D.C. area. Well, I will have to tell you, give you a quick update. I did finish Gladwell's latest book, The Bomber Mafia, and I think it is a decent companion to Serenade to the Big Bird the book we reviewed on the last episode. I think he fills in some holes of some of our discussions, but it has a very good description of like the Norton bomb site in there and some of the differences of how the U.S. bombed in Japan versus how we bombed in uh, Europe, uh, specifically because the B-29 was so much different than the B-17 or B-24 and what they tried to do and what they could do, and then the discovery of uh, the jet stream over the top of Japan uh, during the start of that bomber offensive, he brings all that to bear. So that's well worth reading. Yeah, well, let me jump in. The parallel, I think, between Gladwell's Bomber Mafia book and what we're talking about in this episode or this idea that advances in aviation, it will prevent a return to the trenches of World War I. And I think that influenced both the idea of the bomber and the use of airborne troops. But anyhow, that's just my opinion. No, I agree with you completely. And I think that's something we may bring up as we go through tonight's book, is that whole desire to avoid another World War I. 
so you're working the paving stones. Now, did you do that cold start? Are you using the compactor or are you just trying to redo what I know is out there? I'm just trying to redo what is out there. No compactor. You only use those things if you want to do it right. And that's never really, you know, that's not too big of a factor in my calculus. You know this. So basically uh, reading the instructions on the side of the bucket, YouTube and leaf blower, garden hose and a bunch of other stuff. I'm making it happen. So you do paver stones like I do breaks. We just rando pick out two or three YouTube videos and decide that's how you do it and then start operating totally half-assed full blast that's how that's how i roll man i'm sure your pavers will turn out as well as my brakes did so good on you on that probably less dangerous but it's still a method one other thing uh, before we get into further into the show tonight i did want to bring this up have you guys been reading next month's book yes i, I started i have not okay Bill, I know you may not have been ready. I will give you a little spoiler alert. During the first battle that they discuss there in Neptune's Inferno, get this picture, because I was reading this the other night, and it was like mind-blowing to me. You're in a fire direction space on a cruiser, and you're the in the area where you're training the guns on the Japanese cruisers, which are now on both sides of you blasting away. And an eight-inch shell rips through your compartment, and you're sitting on the fire director's chair, and it's sitting on top of a metal stanchion. And an eight-inch shell rips through your compartment and through and throughs you. In route, takes out your stanchion, and you fall on your butt. It is a crazy description of naval combat during World War II, and I think we're going to have a fantastic time discussing that. Kevin, what was your thought on that when you read that? First of all, it's just incredible that he didn't lose his legs or, or whatever. But the, the second is, what's his thought? His thought in, in that was that, oh, I, I better get off my ass and do something. So no, I, no it's thoroughly enjoyable. I like it. Yeah, I, like I said, I think we're all going to be in for a, a really good discussion next month. But it is crazy because you just don't think of naval combat that is brutal as he describes it in these cruiser engagements off of Guadalcanal. So I'm looking forward to that. Bill, did we get any mail this month? Uh, yes, we did. First one is from James Pike in Charleston, West Virginia. He found the podcast recently, and he had a, he's got a lifelong fascination with World War II based on his grandfather's experience as a CB in the Pacific during the war. And he's recently started to read about the Vietnam Wars, wondering if we had any recommendations for books about the Marines' fight along the DMZ. And I'll lead off, uh, yes, we do. Just from my end, even though they're both novels, Jim Webb's Fields of Fire and Carl Marlantes's uh, Matterhorn, I highly recommend them. Like I said, they're both novels, but it's pretty clear where the characters and where the stories come from. And it comes from the author's experiences uh, in Vietnam. And it, it's focused on their world at the small unit level. So again, both of those are my two top recommendations. Kevin, how about you? Yeah, I w I've been reading The uh, Valley of Decision. It uh, covers the Battle of Quezon and the buildup to it. Uh, a little bit dry in the middle, but definitely worthwhile. Uh, a lot of key figures and, and tells why that battle took place. So, nope, I would read that one. Valley of Decision. Keeping in the theme of valleys, 
I would also recommend Ambush Valley by Eric Hamill. It's a book that covers Re-26's fight up on just south of Kianten during a four-day battle that they were in. The battalion was ambushed at one point. And the interesting thing about that particular book is it's written in a kind of a different format. It's where the author does, he quotes individual participants in the battle and kind of creates a narrative through quotation rather than just him writing about it. And so as each portion of that battle flows, you see it from the platoon commander perspective, the squad leader perspective, the battalion commander perspective, and the individual Marines perspective on what they were seeing and and how that portion of the battle was impacting them. It's very well written and um, very interesting. Just as an aside, in four days, 3rd Battalion, 26 Marines took 46% casualties, I think. So that kind of gives you the scale of the battle, and and, uh, it's very, very interesting. And Bill, your two choices are well worth reading, especially for the younger readers out there who are interested in history. Uh, I know my son read both of those books and enjoyed them a lot. And it's something, you know, sometimes it's easier for the younger readers to read novels than some of the more dry stuff. But I would also say very quickly that as we move forward in the podcast, we already have at least three Vietnam books on the reading list over the next 12 or 13 books we've got scheduled to review. So I think we're going to get to Vietnam. I know it's been something that we've wanted to do, but we're headed that direction pretty quickly. So I think within the next three or four episodes, we're going to do a book on Vietnam. Uh, Well, we also got another one uh, from Gerald Taylor in Oak Park, Illinois. He just recommends that we start a Facebook page so that we have more access to people listening to the podcast. And he also asks we provide listeners with a list of books we're we're thinking about uh, for reviews so that they could have some input on what we plan to review. Not really a question, just just some input, which we appreciate. Yeah, those are both great ideas, and I know we've been meaning to do a Facebook page for quite some time. We will put up a list of books. I know we already have out to, I think, somewhere like episode 23 mapped out in terms of which books we're going to do. We're definitely headed that direction. We just need to get that up there, and I think we'll just put that on the website, Bill, so that we can readers know what's coming up, and it'll give them some cueing if they want to read along with us. So anyways, always great to have feedback. Please keep it coming. We do try to do some modifications to what we have on the schedule based on what what listeners are interested in so that we can support what you guys are interested in. Bill, before we get off and running tonight, can you give us some operational context into what we're going to talk about when we get into the deep dive on the first minute? People have thought about airborne troops for a long time. In 1784, Benjamin Franklin wrote about soldiers in hot air balloons causing, quote, mischief, and Napoleon gave some thought to using balloon troops to cross the English Channel and invade Great Britain in the early 1800s. It wasn't until after World War I the airborne idea really got going in a realistic direction, though. By that time, aircraft range and lift capacity had grown to make moving a large enough force far enough and reliably enough to really have an effect possible. 
Plus, militaries were keen on thinking of new ways to avoid the ghastly stalemated trenches of World War I, so they tried to bring the airborne idea to life. The Italians conducted an airborne exercise in November 1927. The Soviets tested out the idea in the early 1930s, and Germany started training paratroopers in 1936. After some earlier tests, the U.S. Army got into the game when it formed an airborne test platoon in June 1940. The platoon figured out the early techniques and procedures for how the U.S. Army would conduct airborne operations. The idea kept growing. In March 1942, the Army formed its Airborne Command, and its first airborne division was the 82nd. This division was an already formed infantry division, and the Army redesignated it as an airborne division on 15th of August 1942. The 82nd did regimental-sized jumps into Sicily and Salerno in 1943, and was then moved back to England to be ready for the invasion of Normandy in 1944. And that's what this book is about, the Army's jump into Normandy. Just to give you an idea of how quickly the idea of airborne troops had grown, the U.S. fielded five airborne divisions of roughly 8,400 soldiers each, and the British had two airborne divisions during World War II, and they'd both started it with none. With the popularity of Band of Brothers, it is sometimes forgotten that the 101st wasn't the only airborne unit to participate in the invasion of Normandy. The U.S. 82nd and British 6th Airborne also jumped into Normandy and, in fact, had a larger impact on the D-Day campaign than the 101st. Edward Gerio's book, The First Spin End, is an account of the 82nd Airborne's division activities leading up to the invasion and what they did during the first three days of the campaign. Specifically, he goes into detail on the division's effort to secure and hold San Marigliese and the causeways leading to and from Utah Beach. Both of these objectives were viewed as critical by the D-Day planners because holding them would stymie the Germans' ability to counterattack the landing beaches with armor. Ruggiero spends the first third of the book describing the training and preparation the 82nd conducted prior to the invasion. He paints a vivid picture of the eight months leading up to the invasion, both from a training and planning perspective. In this portion of the book, we see the concerns that senior Allied commanders had about dropping 30,000 U.S. and British paratroopers behind the beaches. We also learn why ground commanders like Bradley and Montgomery viewed the use of airborne landings as critical to the success of the entire invasion. The only criticism I have with the book is it's a little light on the training side. It would have been nice if the book contained some additional detail on what training at the battalion, company, or platoon levels looked like. It is always interesting to see what training at the individual and unit level was focused on and how well prepared the troops were for battle. One of the best parts of the book is the author's description of the actual jump the paratroopers made into Normandy. Readers of the book get a real feel for what it must have been like to stand in the back of a C-47 as it flies across the Carentan Peninsula on the way to their drop zones, early on the morning of June 6th. I've often wondered why the U.S. Airborne Divisions were scattered so badly while the British did a much better job of dropping their troops on the designated drop zones. Ruggiero clears this up with his description of the dense, low-level clouds the U.S. transport pilots encountered while making landfall on the peninsula. The clouds caused the C-47 formations to disperse both laterally and in altitude to try to avoid collisions. At the end of the chapter describing the jump, Bergerio includes one of the best maps I've ever seen. The map plots where every plane load of paratroopers landed on the night of June 6th. The map also highlights how small an area that 23,000 paratroopers landed in. Basically, if you place the center of a circle with a four-mile radius 
on top of San Marigliese. That is where the airborne divisions landed and fought. That is not to say that everyone landed in the circle, but the vast majority of aircraft dropped their troops into that area. For years, I've wondered why the paratroopers landing at night were able to orient themselves relatively fast and start heading to their objectives, even when they've been dropped far afield from their drop zones. What the map clearly shows is that a paratrooper just needed to walk in one direction for 500 to 1,000 meters, and they were going to run into an easily identifiable terrain feature that would allow them to get their bearings. Ruggiero does an excellent job of providing the book's readers what it was like for the paratroopers right after landing. He devotes a chapter to describing different soldiers' experience during their first two hours on the ground. In this portion of the book, you get a good feel for how effective the German strategy of flooding the areas west of Utah Beach was. These man-made obstacles made landing and moving to their objectives much more difficult for the paratroopers. His first-person accounts of soldiers landing in six to eight feet of water and almost drowning were especially well-written. It is also in this portion of the book that readers are provided vivid descriptions of soldiers that were unfortunate enough to be dropped directly over San Marigliese. The remainder of the book is devoted to the 82nd seizing and holding San Marigliese in the causeway. It is in this portion of the book that Ruggiero hits his stride and provides readers a new insight into these battles. His depiction of how San Marigliese was taken in the early morning hours of June 6 was especially interesting. Basically, he describes the Americans walking into town and having the French civilian point out where the German billets were located. The paratroopers then go into the houses and capture or kill the Germans charged with defending the town. The real strength of the First Men Inn is the portions of the book that cover the fight for the Lafayette Causeway. The author covers this fight in all of his phases with just the right amount of detail and paints an excellent picture of what happened at this critical location on the battlefield. This part of the book was especially good because there aren't many books that cover this fight in depth. Instead, most of the emphasis are placed on what happened at San Marigliese. It is always great when you find a book that covers some aspect of a battle that has been overlooked by the majority of historians, especially when the battle has significant tactical importance. In the end, I highly recommend this book if you're interested in airborne operations during World War II or what occurred during the first 48 hours of D-Day. If these subjects interest you, this book is a must-read. So guys, that was my book review for tonight. Kevin and Bill, before we get into the details, what were your overall impressions of First Men In? Yeah, I'll tell you. I, I like the book. It does a good job of bringing out the interesting point on the tactical, operational, a lot of really good stuff on the leadership. The author blends the personal stories and the operational contacts, and so that makes an enjoyable read. It's kind of like what Stephen Ambrose writes uh, in a lot of his mi military books, or the techniques, I should say, he uses. I think it's worth mentioning that technique because there's so many tactical or, or ground level perspective books that are written how great I was. And it's all from that, that first person viewpoint. And it goes on and on about how great I was, how much I suffered, how screwed up higher was. Those get a little bit old. The, or the pure historical books, which are the unit blow by blow movements that really give a lot of information, but are, are tough to get through. So they do a really good job with that mixing of the, the personal with the operational. And also, as, you're, as the readers are reading, they're getting some nuggets of information. And in this book, like I said, it ranges from the operational planning, 
the tactics and the leadership. And I think it's important to understand that when you're reading that, you really need to think about the context of these actions. And so this is late 1930s, early 1940s technology. And these guys are doing it old school. So there's no GPS. They're wandering around in the dark without NVGs. And, and so when you're looking at that nugget of information, this is either how you're going to have to do it if you lose your NVGs, or if you're looking at an enemy and trying to plan against them and they don't have NVGs, these are some of the things that they're going to be doing. So I, I really like that. And then I guess my other leadership example is that if you're getting in front of a formation and you're coming out of the officer infantry school, you're standing in front of a unit that has been to Iraq or has been in combat. Uh, you're no different than Ekman, who as a new commander to the 505th is getting up there and speaking for the first time to a group of combat vets. That, does, that hasn't changed at all. So interesting read. I, I think it's a good one for anyone looking for some knowledge and uh, understanding in those areas. Bill, what did you think? Uh, I agree. Uh, the author, Ruggiero, he does a good job of weaving together the stories of different people from the top to the bottom, what these guys thought, what they did, what they, what they experienced. And he puts it all together into a coherent story that it really increased my understanding of what happened. So that's my impression. Let's talk about some details of the book. Before we talk about what took place at San Mariglis and the causeways near Lafayette, let's talk about airborne operations in 1944 and kind of what was going on as they get ready for the invasion. I found it interesting that, you know, the Americans and the British are, are ramping up their airborne capability and they're, they're going through some processes there. But the Germans had a totally v different view of, of parachute assaults and that was because of Crete. Crete comes along, they decide they're gonna take this and they drop in all their paratroopers, okay? It worked, but it, destroyed them also. Um, reading the book, Heaven and Hell, The War Diary of a German Paratrooper by Martin Palpel, it follows him through that battle a little bit. And when they get out of Crete, the Germans' view is that it was a waste of men and material, that it's a good capability, but they never have another major air assault following Crete. Part of that's because of the conduct of the war. I mean, they were on the defense, so they didn't need that. But they still re retained it. And part of that was political, I think. The, the Luftwaffe wanted to have some ground troops, wanted to have that elite force. And, and we see the elite force idea throughout the German forces. And if that's, you know, let's face it, the Germans were very good about building elitism. They're also very good about reconstituting forces. And we see that over and over within that book. And then the rest of the war, we see their, their paratroopers really being used as a kind of a fireman brigade. And they go everywhere 
throughout Russia, throughout Sicily, and then we find them again in Normandy. So even though the U.S. and the British look at Crete, and I don't know if they how much they knew about how much it cost the Germans, and but they look at Crete, and the Germans are pretty much done after that. The U.S. is they're still all in, and they are building it up. They are training thousands of guys a year to be in the paratroopers, and they create this culture of elitism within the force. You know, even if you get drafted, you you're still got you're going to raise your hand, you're going to volunteer to be in the airborne, and you're going to go down, and and you got to prove yourself and earn your wings at jump school and all that. Create this salon about it, and interestingly, they, they they still cultivate that today. This act of parachuting is a is something special, and they still use it, and we see it today. Yeah, the army uses the whole. Airborne thing is a recruiting tool too, which I always find interesting, right? You know, they bring a recruit in and tell them they're going to go to jump school and that's going to make them elite. And they send all kinds of folks to jump school. So, I mean, I think they put 20,000 people through that school a year. So, how elite can it be? But, you know, Crete is often looked at really kind of as a pride victory kind of example, right? Where victory comes at such a great cost that the win isn't really worth it. And when you look at the Germans, you know, what they take away from it is we have devoted a great deal of resources to creating an elite unit, and then we throw them away on the battlefield senselessly in an airborne operation. So what they do is, as you said, Kevin, they stop doing that. Well, the other thing they also found out is, you know what, we just don't have the assets to pull this off. We, we don't have the assets to do multiple division jumps to seize key terrain. So if you look at Crete specifically, right, I think the Germans used just under 500 uh, Ju-52s, which is their transport aircraft. And they lost 34% of that force during the Crete operation. So they lost 170-plus aircraft during the jump. And those aircraft were very, very valuable to them across their entire force because they used them for resupply they used them to move people they used them for all the utility things just like we did a c-47 except they didn't have as many of them and they couldn't reconstitute them as fast because their industry couldn't build them fast enough okay we don't have the assets to do this it's too costly so they just shut that thing off so if you look at like from a manpower perspective between the paratroopers and the air landing unit that they use which was a mountain troops that they landed of the almost 23,000 people they used in Crete, they lost 6,500 of them. They were casualties. So that's like 30% of the force. So from their perspective, it's like, this is way too costly. Let's go a different route. So that, yeah, the Germans looked at that and they're like, mm, we lost a, a, you know, a third of the aircraft or over a third of the aircraft and, uh, and a third of the personnel were casualties. This is probably not worth it, especially they also knew they had a lot more pressing uh, issues to deal with. So, but so they're kind of they're done with the airborne game essentially. But by 1944, the U.S. and the British they're well on their way to building seven airborne divisions, and they haven't formed it yet, but they're going to have an allied airborne army. I think the resource imbalance gives them the ability to do that by this time you know the u.s industrial output is they can support that idea and you know the allies used 830 c-47s to drop 
15,500 U.S. guys and like 7,900 British guys. But even with over 800 aircraft, it was still a constraint. But four months later, going into Market Garden, they had more than 1,430 aircraft available to lift both the British and the U.S. So you can see this resource imbalance. It continues to grow, and it allows them to do these multi-division size jumps. So here we are in 44. The industrial might of the U.S. is cranking out these planes. They've got these guys raising their hand to be the elite paratroopers, and they're still, but they're still trying to figure out how to use it, right? So you see two different schools of thought coming through. So Marshall has a, a, a theory about these army resources. How are we going to use this weapon called airborne? And in his view, they're an operational level of war asset. And so he's urging Eisenhower, hey, let's drop the paratroopers on Paris. We'll seize the airfield, and the Germans are going to have to take all their resources to try to contain Paris because we've got this air bridgehead now, and we're pumping stuff in deep behind their lines. And I think he got that idea from Crete because... Uh, it's just a line or two in Popple's book, and he talks about the tide of the battle in Crete isn't turned until they seize the airfield and they drop in a regiment on aircraft that land and they have a cohesive force, a regiment, basically, of, of airborne infantry. And so I think that's what happens and and how they get that idea. But... Right. Marshall and Eisenhower are conflicted on how best to use this tool that the, the U.S. is building. It's almost like, you know, Marshall guy was reading, you know, H.G. Wells, War in the Air, and is like, OK, yeah, we're going to go take Paris with this and unhinge everything the Germans are trying to do in the West. And he, he wants to go deep and go big. Eisenhower is a little more conservative and he wants to use the airborne troops more at the tactical level and specifically by having them using them in a way that it supports the landings on the beaches. He wants to seize the causeways to prevent the Germans from using them and allow the Allies to use them to get off the beach and also disrupt German counterattacks on the beach. So he goes a little more conservative. He wants to specifically use them to support the landings. And I think he also thought it would be useful to have the units close enough to support each other. The author doesn't talk about it, but the um, the constraints of landing craft limited, even though they had lots of them, they always wanted more and they could use more, but that's what was really limiting how many forces they could land on the beach. And so, okay, I'm wondering if Eisenhower was just looking at this as another way to get forces in to that area, uh, but he definitely wanted to get them in there so they could help each other, vice going deep like Marshall wanted to. There's a third view, too, and it's even more conservative than Marshall and Eisenhower's perspective, and that is Air Marshal Lee Mallory's view, and he was Eisenhower's air commander, a British guy who viewed the airborne assault as way too costly, and on multiple occasions on the lead-up to the planning and execution of D-Day, he told Eisenhower to call off the airborne operations. And he was 
really adamant about it. And I think he had, um, it's almost a premonition on his part that they were going to take 70% casualties, both in aircraft and uh, paratroopers. And he just didn't want that. He just thought that was a waste of an asset and that they did. They were going to have a lot of blood on their hands. If you could imagine Eisenhower sitting there right before they're about ready to kick this thing off, and they've been planning it for eight months, and his air commander comes up to him and says, you've got to call off these three divisions we've got planned to go in, and because they're going to take 70% cash. And Eisenhower would go to Montgomery and Bradley, his ground commanders, and say, what are your thoughts? Should we call this off? And they were both, no, we need those guys. We need them right behind the bridgehead. They're going to seize key objectives. And it gets back to your point, Bill, about the landing force and the airborne force working together and having a mutually agreed upon scheme of maneuver that was going to support each element. And Montgomery and Bradley were adamant, no, we need these or we cannot do the landing. And based off of that, Eisenhower goes against Lee Mallory's perspective, which is the German perspective at this point. And Eisenhower takes the gamble and it works out. So the the Allies are taking a a crawl, walk, run approach to learning how to use this uh, asset. I think it's important to understand that that crawl, walk, run is taking place on two different levels. It's happening at the staff level. Okay, so they're learning how basically to move these large masses of, of forces on the battlefield using aircraft, jumping them in. At the same time, we see in the book Gavin talking about training and learning how to move these troops on the individual or on the tactical level. And occasionally those two sides conflict. Um, they do conduct some battalion size operations in support of Operation Torch, and then they move up to some regimental sized operations. Yeah, by 1943, the U.S. had gone from having the idea shortly before the war to being able to conduct regimental-sized operations in Sicily and Salerno, and then they just kept the trajectory going up from there. And by D-Day, they were in the full run phase. They could conduct multiple division drops simultaneously. So at Normandy, they dropped three divisions and then three months later, when they do the liberation of Holland, so when they do Market Garden, they drop three more divisions in support of that operation. So you can see they go from battalion to division relatively quickly. But the difference in between Market Garden and D-Day is that the Allies still weren't confident they controlled the air over the drop zones. And so that's why they drop at night, provide the planes protection, uh, from the enemy air and from the ground threats. And it's it's also partly in timing of support for the landings to start. Uh, they need that time to, to seize those objectives. The other thing I think, it, they, they came away from Sicily was, uh, and it influenced their thinking a lot going into Normandy, was their ability to deal with armor. They could jump in bazooka teams. You can have guys carrying uh, anti-tank mines. Not too many of them, but you, know, you can carry a few of them around. But they were very worried about their ability to really stand up to German armor, and rightfully so. So they really wanted to bring in their artillery and anti-tank guns 
And that's why that stuff had to come in by glider. And so that's why they scheduled the early glider assault that was coming in right after the jump during the night. And then a lot more was supposed to come in in the morning. Uh, And that influenced how they planned to do this big jump into Normandy. Yeah, you know, Kevin, not only did they use the night to try to protect their paratroopers, but they also used altitude of jump, right? So the lower you go, the less time you spend in the air, the less vulnerable you are to ground fire as you go down. So I believe the drop altitude for Normandy was 400 feet. However, for a variety of reasons, they ended up jumping anywhere from 250 feet to 2,000. And so, for instance, if you jump at 400 feet, you're in the air less than a minute. Um, So you're down on the ground pretty quick, and it limits your dispersion of the people coming out of that airplane. So you should be relatively tight because, you know, you're only in the air for a minute, so you got less time for the environment to affect the drift of that chute. I had a baseball coach in college named Ray Ruffing, who had jumped in with the 82nd Airborne into Normandy. And he said they were in so low, they were well below 250 feet. They were so low when he went out of the airplane that his parachute opened. He had one swing and he slammed into the ground. So that leads me to believe that those guys were jumping somewhere around 200 feet, which is right around the area of your chute doesn't have enough time to open. So that would be an interesting ride. From the book and and from what we see is that most of the units didn't land uh, anywhere close to being cohesive. And when they guys aren't together, they don't have their weapon systems, all right? The the chutes with the weapons, they're landing in, in the water. They're scattered around. The guys are scattered. Um, what I found, just a, a small detail but a difference between the U.S. and the Germans was that the U.S. is dropping everybody in and they're not wearing any rank insignia, right? Um, so you click twice and you find this guy in the bushes next to you and he says, hey, we're going this way. Hey, every man has a vote in this. In the, in the darkness, they don't know each other because all the units are intermixed. The Germans... Hey, they're still wearing their insignias. They're still, hey, Herr Captain, I'm wearing my Knight's Cross. I've got the command here. I'm the senior guy in this little group, and away we go. It's a small detail, but it does help the Germans have that cohesiveness uh, of action a lot of times. And a lot of times, you just don't see that on the American forces. So the chain weapon systems and the chain of command... It's there for, they need that. We'll also talk about that when we review Utmost Savagery, the Marine Landings uh, on Tarawa. You know, they had the same problems, but for different reasons. In the after action on this, to a degree, the jump into Normandy was thousands of guys scattered across the peninsula there. And that, I think the takeaway from that, let's do it during the day. That way we know we'll have a better chance of forming up. Uh, and that's what they did in in Market Garden and then the jump across the Rhine. But I think it's a good example of where all your thinking pre-war gets tested in the laboratory of the real world 
and then you adjust from there. You take the lessons on board, and uh, hopefully it can make you make allow you to make more informed decisions later on. And the weather is another big thing that impacts these types of operations. In the case of D-Day, you had a combination of forces. One half, the landing force needs the the tides, uh, the moon had to align correctly so that both assets could come in at the same time. You know, the airborne and the seaborne assets could take place together. Uh, that it creates a variable that the commander has no control of. It's a, it's a plan that's very weather dependent. And you see this throughout World War II. Yeah, what I found interesting in the book, he talks a fair amount about it, is Eisenhower, well, the whole staff, they all knew, okay, we want the moon for the airborne at a certain point at night. We want the tide low early in the morning uh, when the sun's coming up, and the weather's got to support both of those. And so they had these windows when they could do it, and they knew the weather would have to support would support it. And they put a lot of thought into how they were going to make these decisions and make the call beforehand. He goes into a lot of detail about how they even rehearse this, and you got to hand it to that guy, the head weather officer, Skaggs, who wasn't just a gifted meteorologist. I mean, the guy really had studied English Channel weather, which might be kind of an arcane topic, but this guy knew it. But Skaggs also knew what was expected of him and when it was expected. And it worked out. He told Eisenhower, weather's not going to support doing this on the 5th. And and so they delayed, but he didn't just walk away from the problem. He knew he had to stay engaged. And he's like, okay, you're probably going to get a window here and you could do this on the 6th. And they did. But it's interesting the detail the author goes into explaining how that decision was made and all the thought that went into it beforehand. Yeah, one of the questions that I've always found kind of interesting to me is why did the U.S. force get so much more scattered and lose its cohesion where they think the British did a much better job on their landings at Normandy? And it's one of those things I've been thinking about for years. And Ruggiero does a really, really good job of explaining why this happened. Basically, as the U.S. airborne force was coming across the Carentan Peninsula, they ran into a cloud bank. And that cloud bank caused the aircraft to disperse. They had to go up in altitude or down in altitude and laterally so they wouldn't have mid-air collision. This dispersion then sent aircraft all over the place and it became almost an individual effort. The aircraft stream is heading on a heading across the peninsula towards the drop zones, but now they're no longer in squadron formation or in section formation. They're just all over the place trying to avoid these clouds and ground fire. So the result is they just drop loads all over the area around San Marigliese and Lafayette. It wasn't that they were way out of area geographically. It was just that they weren't on their drop zones. The one exception to that is the 505, the only combat experience regiment that jumped into Normandy for the U.S. They had jumped into Sicily and they had jumped into Salerno. And they were Gavin's old regiment. 90% of the regiment landed on its designated drop zone. So the 505 is the exception to the rule here. And after thinking about it, it struck me that because of their combat experience and the fact that they had done multiple combat jumps already at night, their commanders 
their operations officers and their senior NCOs had all had experience doing this. So what differentiated them from the folks without the experience? And I would contend that the single most important reason for that was they knew how to coordinate with the air crews. They knew how to talk to them and they knew how to impress upon them the importance of them getting to the right drop zone on time. Just as a little observation, not that they're bad people, but for air crew, helicopter air crew, fixed wing air crew, guys driving landing craft trucks, whatever, once they drop you off, where you get off at and where you leaped out of the aircraft really isn't as big of a concern to them as it is to you. They're going back to where they came from, and you have a vested interest in this much more so than that crew does. Just to uh, kind of pile on, you know, in the in the Marine infantry now, it's it's very conceivable that in the morning you're going to get a helicopter lift, in the the next day you're going to be on an Amtrak, and then on day three you're going to get it in a truck or or some kind of armored vehicle, so. What they what you constantly train the your your NCOs and your unit leaders is that when they're in a vehicle, whether it's a, a aircraft or truck, that they are coordinating with that driver or with that pilot, uh, and making sure that they have that coordination, like Tony talked about. Because if you don't coordinate, if you don't make that pilot or that driver feel that they're part of the game, you're not going to be successful. And at the end of the day, you're the one that's responsible. They aren't. Um, when we were training, I would often have the uh, the truck drivers or the Amtrak crew, if if the NCO wasn't keeping track of where the where the truck was or where the track was, hey, drop them off about a mile short of the objective or sh- short of the assembly area and make them walk a little bit longer. Yeah, yeah, if you hop in there and just tell the guy, hey, wake me up when we get there, you're probably in for a bad couple days. Um, <laughs> but anyhow, the, the other part of this whole getting units to where they need to be and forming them up is this idea of the pathfinders. That, And he talks about it in the book, and they put a lot of effort into developing this idea. And when they went into Normandy, the idea was they would drop the Pathfinders in 30 minutes prior to the main force. And there were, that's not a lot of time, but there's a reason for that. They didn't want to have Pathfinders sitting on a drop zone for hours and hours and hours, because uh, then if they got compromised, it's going to kind of give away the whole plan as to, oh, there seem to be guys here marking out drop zones for, for a particular reason. So they only gave them 30 minutes. And the idea was they would jump in and they would set up lights to mark the drop zone. They would be directional lights. They're not just, they're not marking the thing for everyone to see. They're marking it from a direction. They would also uh, put markings on which drop zone it was. And then they also had this, I think it was called the Eureka Beacon that would send out radio signals uh, that uh, that aircraft, and they had the receiver, uh, for some reason I think it was called the Rebecca, that could receive, but it could guide them in. So this idea of using the Pathfinders, again, something new, but they were using it in Normandy. Yeah, the whole Pathfinder capability was really like, again, this evolution of 
how to do this. And as they as they conduct operations, they change their doctrine and approach based off experience, right? So the idea was that the pathfinders would set up these visual markers so at night they could see where the drop zones were. They wouldn't just be a cluster of lights. They would actually have a letter so that, oh, we're going to go to H drop zone. So because there was multiple drop zones on the battlefield, so you didn't want people going to the wrong drop zone. And they also set out the markers in a way that provided the jumpers a wind direction because wind is important on the way down. So if you do a downwind landing, you usually break your leg. Anyways, on the aircraft side, only one in 12 aircraft actually had the transceivers required to home in on those beacons. It was usually the, the lead aircraft. And then the rest of the squadron would fly in formation around that aircraft. What they found at Normandy was the one in 12 who had the beacon were able to drop their paratroopers on the drop zone where the other 11 were the ones that were scattered all over the place because they, you know, they broke formation when they went through the cloud bank. So it's very interesting, really, as they go through this process of learning how to do this, they, they refine it and get better each time. Bill, let me, let me just add one thing. Your comment about 30 minutes prior, uh, Popple, in his book, talks about the first paratroopers that they captured that landed, uh, two things. One, they were still trying to figure out, is this the main landing or is this just some kind of raid? And so by only having that 30 minutes ahead of time, uh, it helped keep that confusion on the German side. Uh, the other thing Popple mentioned is, hey, all these guys, they're fat. Why are all these Americans so fat and big and, and we're so skinny? But anyway. Yeah, I, I don't know if it's in that book, but there was the story about captured some wise ass and asked him how many people were with him. And he guaranteed him it's just me as, as the sky fills with parachutes uh, over Normandy. But anyhow, good talk about what they thought about, how they planned it, and how they got into Normandy and on the ground. Let's talk a little bit about what happened once they were there and the attack on St. Marigli's. To start with, let's kind of explain why it was so important from the D-Day planner's perspective. Why was so much energy and time and troops devoted to the capture of San Marigli's and get a feel for why it was one of the two real big fights for the 82nd Airborne. First, Ruggiero describes the town fairly well, so you get a very good picture of what the 82nd was looking at. And the town is basically a crossroad that has a road intersection that leads north and south and east and west. Now, when you go up north from it, you go directly towards the port of Cherbourg. And from the Allies' perspective, they really wanted a port as quickly as possible so they could start unloading their supplies. They were still trying to figure out if they could get all of their supplies over the beach and then support their offensive activity that way. And so they thought it was critical to have a port. So San Marigliese allows you to go inland and then turn right and start heading up towards that port so you can capture it as quickly as possible. It also allows you to go east-west and cut uh, Cotentin Peninsula in two so you can secure the whole thing relatively quickly. And because you can go east-west, it is also the primary counterattack route for the German armor if it heads towards Top Beach. So basically, all roads lead to San Marigliese. Right. So the 82nd, phase one, 
I'm controlling, I've got to take it to stop the German armor from reaching the invasion beaches. For phase two, I need it so that the rest of the divisions can head towards the port of Cherbourg and, and go. That second part is the reason why the 82nd has to pay the price to take it. Because if it's only to protect the invasion force, well, you know what? Whistle up the bombers, call in the naval gunfire, and we could just wipe that thing off the map, and the armor from the Germans isn't going to come in and disrupt the invasion. It's the second part where we want to move forward and take the, uh, the port. That's why the 82nd has to seize the town. Yeah, and so the 82nd, they know they got to seize the town, and they've got a plan to do it. They've spent a lot of time putting it together. They're reviewing it, they're briefing it, and they're getting it out on all levels. And everyone's got a pretty good idea of how things are supposed to go. But like they say, plans only survive first contact. Things start to go different. Uh, None of them expected to go flying over St. Maragliese and have it, it was on fire. And the civilian population was out there trying to put the fire out under the supervision of the German garrison. So you don't plan on that happening. And then you throw in things like none of them had planned on, oh, we're going to get dispersed all over a wider area. So their plan of how they were going to seize this town and defend it, well, it largely goes out the window as they're leaving the door of the aircraft. The author does a really fine job of describing what happens to the paratroopers that were unlucky enough to jump directly over San Maragliese. Leading into that, he provides a description of what it's like to be in the back of a C-47 at 400 feet, getting ready to jump into combat in most cases, in many cases, for the paratroopers for the first time. They've trained for this for eight months. They're ready to go. They're keyed up. And based on their procedures at the time, when that green light goes on, they're going out of the airplane. There's... They don't care where they are. They are going out of that airplane. And you get an, a really good feel for what that entails. And the jump masters who are in the back, they want to make sure that those paratroopers get out of the airplane safely and that their equipment's on correctly, but they're not overly concerned either with where they're going. And the, the author does a great job at describing that. What you see, though, is there's a very, very famous incident during D-Day where Private John Steele is in that stick that jumps over San Maragliese. And he's the guy that gets hooked up on the chapel steeple in the town and gets shot at and plays dead. And you see it in The Longest Day. It's, um, and he was from the Fox Company of the 2nd Battalion, 505. Well, there was another guy from that same company, a guy named Ken Russell, and he was unlucky enough to land on that church as well, except he didn't land on the steeple. He landed on the roof and started to roll down to the edge. Well, he stops himself right before the edge, and he's getting shot at on top of this roof, and he's a target. So he cuts his equipment away and falls like 20 to 25 feet off that, that church into the ground, which is enough to stun anybody. Well, he gathers himself, and he knows he's got to get the heck out of town. And this part of the book is really, really fantastic. Well, he gets out of town, and he runs into a German flak wagon, quad, um, 20-millimeter anti-aircraft piece that's shooting up at the aircraft going over the top. He's so angry that his friends were killed in the town, 
He takes a gamma grenade out, gets right next to this thing, pops it in the back where the crew's working the gun because they didn't put any security out, and blows the whole thing up and kills the crew. Uh, almost kills himself, too, because he was a little close when the thing went off. But the bottom line is, what I'm trying to convey here is the author really provide this vivid picture of what it was like for those paratroopers that were unlucky enough to jump over a San Marilis, which is on fire, like Bill described. And uh, they're trying to avoid the fire and get on the ground and not get killed by the Germans who are shooting at them from, from below. The last bit about that is the Americans got a little bit of a break here because a significant number of the troops that had been garrisoned at San Marilis prior to the invasion had all been transferred to the Potakale area at the end of May. So it could have gone completely different for the Americans if all the Germans had been in town at the time of the invasion. Today, jump masters spend a fair amount of time on the run-in talking to the air crew, confirming, you know, speed, altitude, all that. And then they also, they got to look at the drop zone before they start sending sticks of guys out into the air. The way the author describes it, and I don't know what their exact procedures were, but they were all very eager to get out of the aircraft, and uh, once the green light went, uh, they were out into the blackness, uh, and that was that. They were into the unknown, and they were going to figure it out from there. You know, Bill, when they jump, their mind is probably just holding on to one thing, and that's getting on the ground, and then they're going in with the commander's intent. And commander's intent is a phrase that's used to kind of sum up what the commander is telling his guys, this is what we've got to do. Because the whole operations order, it's kind of like a bill in Congress. Nobody has read the whole thing. And the one for Normandy was probably thousands of pages long. So commander's intent is kind of like the cliff notes. It's from it's one or two sentences from the commander to everybody. Hey, if in doubt, do something to help the cause. And in this case, it was get on the ground, orientate yourself, get to St. Marigliese. That's our rally point. We'll figure it out from there. Ruggiero describes the Germans that were garrisoned in St. Marigliese's reaction to the jump. And it was fascinating. I'd never heard this before. I'd never read it. What he's describes is so if you could imagine a bunch of germans they're out there with the french trying to fight this fire in the town and 700 aircraft fly over the top of you and guys start jumping out some of them jump right into the town well the germans take their rifles off their shoulders or go grab them and start shooting the paratroopers well once the aircraft leave and are back in route to england and things quiet down the germans garrisoned in the town according to Ruggiero, and I believe this to be true, did two things. Either they figured out this was the real deal and they grabbed their weapons and got the heck out of there. And then there was a whole other group that just went to sleep. They just went back to their billets and crashed. That to me is unbelievable if you think about that. That, that is kind of weird. These guys had actually seen paratroopers coming down in the middle of the town had engaged him, and then they were like, mm, okay, well, that was it. Meanwhile, hundreds of planes had flown over. Uh, you think uh, they would have done more. Well, they didn't. Uh, and then on the American side, you got guys like Lieutenant Colonel Kraus. He's the battalion commander for 3rd Battalion of the 505. He's, things are going great from him. He lands like almost exactly where he's supposed to. And just like he had planned, he goes and finds his rally point, and everything's going perfectly according to plan. But 
I guarantee you he hadn't planned on this. He walks in, and about five in the morning, he finds a French civilian and starts walking around with a guy. And he learns where the Germans are quartered. And the guy is his local tour guide. And before you know it, uh, they've killed or captured the remaining Germans in St. Marigliese pretty easily. The initial taking of the town uh, for Krauss wasn't that hard. What what he has to focus on, though, is how to defend it against the counterattack. And so what he does is he, he switches the plan around sets up roadblocks on the perimeter, and then cleans up the inside. But, you know, this is one of those nuggets regarding leadership. Krauss is the, his leadership style is not what most people want, okay? He, but he's the right guy with the right style in the right place. Every dog has its day, every trash can has its lid, and every style has a, a very definite time when it will work. So overall, his leadership is poor because he can only bully or challenge. Yet his grasp of what needed to be done was correct. And in this situation, bullying and challenging stragglers and guys who are just showing up, well, it works because he's in the middle like a police, like a policeman at a uh, road junction. And he's directing guys going left, right, get over here, do this, do that. And it works. I don't think the other battalion commanders that are portrayed in in the book really would have done as well as as he did. But even though it works, (laughs) there's some good NCOs like Sergeant Christensen who salute him in the middle of the town and wanted him shot. Okay, Uh, you know, he's not being liked. But Christensen probably wasn't well liked by his men either. Because you see him putting mission first. He's, he goes out to this position that he's directed to by Krauss. He sets up the position based on the effectiveness of what his job is, what the mission is, not the convenience. Because they see a bunch of pre-dug trenches. But he says, no, I need you guys to dig new holes to support this mission. And by doing that, he ends up preventing casualties being more effective, and it it portrays a lot of what combat leadership is, is getting guys to do the right thing, even though they they don't want to. So they prepare the defense and they hold it until the 4th Infantry can make it up from the beaches and links up with them. So good good on them. The, The opposite here is a German local commander who takes that, uh, the option of the counterattack off the table because these are the guys, like you said, Tony, that take off out of town and they go up to Hill 20. Basically, when they do that, they're saying, hey, we're going to bottle the Americans up let the because we're not going to come counterattacking through. It saves men and by using the RD and the mortars on the U.S. positions, but it, it takes that option off for their higher commanders. The other thing about Hill 22 or Hill 20, is that it overlooks the landing zone where the 82nd was planning on bringing in some gliders. They had like, it was something like 175 gliders that were coming in late on the 6th. This was bringing in their heavy weaponry and their anti-armor package. And well, it's already under observation and direct fire from Hill 20. And it it doesn't go well when the gliders come in. It's also got anti-glider obstacles on it. And what struck me is the the 82nd knew that. 
Right. The the paratroopers didn't have comms with hire or back to England. They couldn't warn anybody about the enemy uh, dispositions around the, around the town. And it's really surprising uh, not to have an effective no-com plan. Their no-com plan was basically to use runners. Well, it's really hard to run back to England or run up to the airplane while it's flying towards you. So their runners and judgments that they're used based on the sound of firing, well, Washington, Grant, and Sherman would all been right at home on that battlefield uh, around St. Marigliese at this time. The other thing they didn't plan for was naval gunfire support. But I think that's kind of a staff problem caused by a couple things. First, the relative youth of the, of the staff, not physically, but just the time in their jobs. These guys are all learning on the fly. Uh, they had been CEOs or college students uh, a year before. So they're just not that familiar with all the assets. And their training hasn't really let them expand and, and see that coordination of all the different uh, things that they have. Also, their commanders are older and experienced in the service. But time and again throughout conflicts, you see that commanders often are only familiar with the equipment that they had when they were at that captain uh, and operational level. They don't really think about the assets that are currently being uh, fielded. So in this case, they really aren't that familiar with the idea of using the light aircraft either in the observation for naval gunfire or artillery or using that light aircraft as a uh, relay point for their comms or, the, or radios that they had at that time. It was staggering to me how little effort was spent on communication planning. And I think your point, too, about the staff's inexperience with the equipment they were using is, is really valid. And I think we're going to talk about that next month when we talk about the naval commanders off Guadalcanal and their use of radar. And we'll get into that uh, next month. But it was like they showed no imagination whatsoever. I get that the equipment that they were using was a lot less reliable than what we have today. And in their mind, they just assumed that it would fail. And they wouldn't be able to contact anyone. But there was no imagination used on other options to establish communications early on the 6th. You know, I don't think they ever thought about using airborne relays or having signals on the ground where they would have aircraft that they'd identified to come over and be able to get some indication of where they were, what they were doing, and how successful their landings had been. It was like they put themselves into a self-induced isolation. Some of the author's description of, of the comm equipment, you know, starts and ends with it plowing into a swamp during the jump, and that, that's the last we hear of it. It did strike me that the Allies did a lot of things just for D-Day. 
They planted, painted black and white stripes on all the plane's wings just for D-Day. They built concrete harbors just for D-Day. They created demolition units just for D-Day. So they're doing all that kind of stuff. And I don't know, maybe they did think about it, but it doesn't come through that they put a lot of thought into supporting arms. And like St. Marigliese is well within range of naval gunfire. It could use it offensively, defensively, and it can stay on station well, for as long as you need it. The one time in the book that it is used, you've got uh, that guy Norton. I think he's the OPSO for the 505. Uh, he uses na- naval gunfire and completely destroys the German counterattack on the town. It does seem like they could have used that more effectively if they'd put a little more thought into it. Bill, they, they didn't use it effectively. They kept going back to what they were really good at. And that was... That was the spoiling attack. The author does a good job of describing how the paratroopers are using spoiling attacks to keep the Germans off balance. Basically, a spoiling attack is where you know that the enemy is starting to mass or starting to get his operations together to attack you. So you send a small unit forward and they attack the enemy. And what they're trying to do is just disrupt the, the, the flow of the plan or the assembly, uh, hit the leadership, do something to delay that enemy or inhibit that enemy from conducting their attack. And the paratroopers have to use this because they don't have the heavy guns. They don't have any big equipment. This is what they have. So that's the tactic they use in lieu of the equipment. Um, So they do that. The author does a good job describing it. I think the author does a fantastic job when he's describing the fights in and around San Marigliese on the late on June 6th and throughout June 7, how the U.S. paratroopers use spoiling attacks to keep the Germans at bay. And I think one of my favorite portions of the book is where he describes an action on the 7th of June when the Americans are getting indications that the Germans have massed a multiple battalion force north of San Marigliese and are about ready to retake the town. And their response to that is to send two platoons up to try to attack the Germans before they kick this thing off. And one of the two platoons is led by a Lieutenant Ray known as the Deacon and a real pious guy from Mississippi. Well, he's kind of a backwoods guy. And leading up to this period on June 7th, he'd done some scouting around and had a pretty good idea what the terrain looked like. But before he brought his platoon up there, and just went in the attack, he wanted to do a leader's recon and find out what he was looking at and if he could find a path to wherever the Germans were and find their flank. So he goes on a one-man leader's recon to find that path for his platoon. Well, during his patrol, he hears some Germans speaking on the other side of a hedgerow. He rolls up, gets through the hedgerow, and jumps out, and there is eight German officers all standing around a vehicle with maps planning their attack. He immediately tells them to get their hands up. Seven of the eight do, and the eighth guy goes for a pistol. Well, that that was a mistake. So he proceeds to kill all eight officers, which just happened to be an orders group from 
the 1st Battalion of the 1058th German Division up there. So what he does in five minutes is decapitate the leadership of an entire battalion. And what that does is stop that battalion from ever going into action. What I things I find interesting is even at the individual level, certain people can have a much bigger impact on a battle than, you know, the size of the force that they're commanding. And Ray was definitely one of those guys. You're right. So Ray goes up there and he finds the command group and single-handedly stops whatever that battalion was trying to do before they can do it. Uh, But the other half of the equation, uh, like you said, was uh, the other platoon, and that was Lieutenant Coyle. Interestingly, by this time in the back, the forces that have landed on the beach are starting to make some progress. And so Coyle's platoon has got two Shermans with him. And like you said, they'd already figured out where the threat was coming from. It was north of the town. I think he also had some 101st guys with him. So he's on up his way up north also to uh, address the threat before they get close to the town. In the same way that Ray found the battalion command group, Coyle managed to find a German battalion in a sunken lane. And he's got his two Shermans. Because he found them there, he killed a bunch of them. I captured something like 160 of them. And that battalion just ceased to exist. I think it was even the sister battalion of the of the one that Ray attacked. But the bottom line is that ended the German counterattack threat to St. Mary Lee. You know, the author does a really good job of describing the Shermans rolling up to the, to the uh, assembly area of the Germans, wiping them out. It's, it's like a good sports announcer at a ball game. It's, he's very concise, good read. And I think it's well worth reading the book just for some of the activities in and around Sam Ergles that we've described, specifically the activities on the night of the 6th when they land, and then these counterattacks. Ruggiero does, I, I think, just a superb job at describing what was going on around that town, why it was important, and its significance to the overall battle. But I think we might want to move on a little bit now, and let's focus a little bit on Lafayette and the fights for the causeways, because I think that of all the parts of the book, this might be the very best. Because it sheds light on an engagement that really hasn't been covered in great detail in most books that are written about the Normandy campaign. When people think of the U.S. landings, it seems like they really do focus on Omaha Beach and what the 101st did, primarily because of Ambrose's work with Easy Company. One of the most important fights that takes place in the first three days of the invasion is the fight in and around Lafayette. After the landings, both the Americans and Germans rapidly come to the conclusion that Lafayette and the causeway leading west from it into the little village of Concagny was vital to their respective plans. Ruggiero devotes a lot of the book talking about the fights around Lafayette. And Lafayette really isn't a town. It's more like a manor house with a couple outbuildings located three miles west of St. Marigliese. But it's important because it's right next to the raised road, the causeway, and the bridge. And the reason those are especially important is because the Germans had used the locks to flood the areas around the Marigliese 
Monterey River. And so this creates, it makes it all one big obstacle if you want to move inland. And so at Lafayette, there's a bridge that crosses the river and that leads to a raised roadway, the causeway, that goes to a village at Concagny, 600 meters to the west. So the U.S. looked at all this, and they considered the bridge and the causeway leading west key terrain that they needed. If you're going to get off of the beach, and you're going to move inland, and you're going to be able to take the peninsula and the port of Cherbourg, you're going to do it. You're going to need these things. And so they assigned the 1st Battalion to the 505th to capture the bridge at Lafayette. And the 507th was assigned the task of capturing the west side of the Lafayette Causeway. Controlling the bridge would allow the 82nd to block the German armor from moving towards Utah Beach. That protects the assault troops who are coming through the surf while they're the most vulnerable. There were th- the Germans had three counterattack routes to that beach. North through St. Marigliese, west across Lafayette, the causeway, which was the best route, and especially for armor, and then south across Chef du Point Causeway. The Lafayette Causeway was the best route, and that's why it was considered so important. Now, Lieutenant Dolan, he was the CEO of, of A Company, the 505. He had the best landing of all the companies, I think, uh, of the paratroopers. He moves his company towards Lafayette and arrives roughly at first light. But now remember, we got all these hedgerows and it's 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 hard to deploy as a company. So he's probably moving in column and as they hit that uh, manor, he's trying to get them out into a, attack positions. And it's it's not that far, but it because of the hedgerows, lack of calm, you got 6 hours of piecemeal attacks on the manor. One of the weird portions of this whole battle is it might not have even needed to take place if the 82nd had jumped on the night of the 5th versus the 6th. Because on the early morning on 6th June, the Germans show up two hours before the 82nd jump that night. And a platoon of combat engineers show up at Lafayette, knock on the door, and say, we are going to billet here in the future. What's remarkable about this is in the four years of the occupation of France, no Germans had ever shown up to Lafayette and shown any interest in it. But the night of the invasion, they show up. So if they jump on the 5th, they're not even there. And Dolan's group walks right in and takes the bridge and the causeway. Now, the mission of the Germans, because they were combat engineers, I'm just speculating here, but it's highly likely that they were there to rig that bridge for destruction um, should an invasion happen. But when they get there late on the night of June 5th slash 6th, they just go to bed. And when they wake up in the morning, they figure out that they're under attack and they start putting in the defense. Now, Another point is that, just like you said, Bill, the manor really does look a little bit like a fort or an old-timey castle, has minarets and all that stuff, and it is surrounded by a 20-foot berm that was a burial mound for the Vikings back in those days. And the manor, if you just look at it, you look at pictures, it's just super well-suited for defense. That was pretty interesting. Ruggiero talked about it looks like, I don't know, some group of Vikings way back in the day looked at the same ground and said, hey, this is pretty important, so uh, we'll stay here. But just like St. Mary Glees, 
At Lafayette, you got paratroopers from all three regiments of the 82nd starting to converge on the manor house there. You got Alpha Company and groups of 82nd soldiers. They're attacking the manor from multiple angles, and they're trying to find a weakness in the defense. And remember, the Germans only arrived there the night prior, and they're putting up a stiff resistance. So it does take them six hours, and the Fighting 505 and Dolan and the other groups, they finally take it. But remember, that's the bridge to, to further operations. So now the 507th and the 508th, uh, they're pushed west on that causeway to Cotney, and they're assigned missions, which are on the west side. But that bridge has to also be held. So there's no rest for the Americans at Lafayette. They know that the Germans could counterattack at any moment, and so they start preparing their defense because combat really is a lot of continuing actions. The Germans, they do push through the Americans that have, have went west, and now they're going to attack with armor and try to recapture the bridge starting around 1500 on the 6th. Yeah, when you read this portion of the book, um, you really get an excellent feel for where all the units and individual soldiers are located on the battlefield. I think the author does an excellent job of being able to convey that picture to the readers in words. Ruggiero also includes some excellent maps of the area of the bridge at Lafayette and Concagny. So you get a really excellent visual and you can see this area in, in your mind's eye. He also includes a couple of pictures in the book. You know, a lot of times pictures aren't really all that helpful to me, but in this case, the pictures he includes really does add to the experience of reading it because you get to see the terrain that the Germans and 82nd were fighting over. And that is very, very helpful as, you, again, you build that picture of what was going on during the battle. He spends a considerable time in this portion of the book describing what two bazooka teams from Dolan's company were able to do along the area right behind the bridge. And these two bazooka teams were responsible for destroying three German tanks, which basically created a roadblock that stopped the Germans from pushing across the bridge and into Lafayette and taking the manor back. Um, but his description of those teams and what they were doing under fire was just uh, really, really well done. Now, as these bazooka teams are creating this roadblock by destroying the, the German tanks that are crossing along the causeway, the rest of Dolan's company and the troops from the 507th and 508th there in this engagement are just pouring fire from their side of the river onto this, this causeway and destroying the infantry that are in support of the tanks. Again, this is really, I think, the real strength of this book, and it's well worth reading just for this section alone. Yeah, the Germans really took a beating uh, in their attack, but it didn't stop them from launching additional attacks on June 7th. I think they, they tried it again with like four tanks and two companies of infantry, but uh, Ruggiero describes in great detail the fight that took place on the 7th. And it's in this part of the book where you learn about Sergeant Owens. He's a squad leader, and he is up at the critical part of the fence, and uh, his squad's taking a lot of casualties. And the Americans, including a lieutenant, are pulling off the line, moving away from the bridge at Lafayette, but Owens stays. 
And him staying there is when the Germans asked for an impromptu ceasefire. Everyone's stopped shooting. And it's during the ceasefire, Owen stands up and he looks at the causeway and he just describes, you know, several hundred German bodies just lying on the road. And uh, it took several hours for the Germans to remove all their wounded from the causeway. They're, they're removing the wounded, but they're getting ready for the next play. They're getting ready for the next uh, portion of this battle. So the U.S., while they're moving their wounded, they're also moving up the second of the 325th in a platoon of Sherman tanks. The Germans are moving their wounded, but ready with the artillery and mortars to cover the causeway. Because at this point, the U.S. has the position and if they can start bringing the combat power forward, they can take the whole causeway and continue. It's interesting to me, and you get a feel for the intensity of the initial fight, the two counterattacks that Alpha Company of the 505 repulsed. When they finally pulled them off the line on the 7th, they've been up for more than 72 hours continuously. So they go and place Company A into a reserve status between Lafayette and San Marigliese. They go in and dig in into a position and they just collapse from exhaustion because they're totally spent at that point. So to give, you know, some feel for what this one company did, you know, they jumped into Normandy with 147 soldiers. When they pulled them off the line at Lafayette, they were down to 80 soldiers of which 20 were walking wounded. Dolan's company had suffered 45% killed or seriously wounded in less than 48 hours. So that's a significant number of wounded in that short period. Even with all that, it wasn't over. The 82nd had stopped the Germans on the causeway, and they'd massacred a lot of them. But now it's the 82nd's turn to try and do the exact same thing, take the causeway. And on June 8th, the 82nd, they tried to avoid an attack along the top of the causeway. Gavin and Ridgeway, they send battalions to the right flank, and they cross at a ford so they can uh, capture Konkani from behind or the flank. But those attacks fail. So on the 9th, it's time for the slugfest. No fancy maneuvers. No going to the left. No going to the right. Gavin and Ridgeway call for the attack. West, straight up the causeway. Kevin, that's exactly right. It's very similar, I think, to like a Gettysburg example. Lee tries one flank, he tries the other flank, and then on the third day of Gettysburg, he has to go up straight up the middle, and that's Pickett's charge. Well, the 82nd is kind of in a similar type position, and both Ridgeway and Gavin are under pressure from higher to get Lafayette and the causeway under control so that they can move follow-on forces off Utah Beach. But there's really three factors that are creating this pressure for Gavin and Ridgeway. The first factor is really what we talked about in the last episode when we talk about the bomber barons of the U.S. There was this belief in this concept of strategic bombing. Well, the airborne troops had a similar belief, this idea of aerial envelopment where you could use airborne forces to create situations where the enemy would start to collapse. And both Gavin and Ridgeway were both big believers in this airborne concept. And so they had been assigned the task of 
taking the causeway and the strategic villages on the western side of the Mer de Rey so that the follow-on forces that were landing at Utah Beach could have a pathway to the west so they could cut off the entire peninsula. And at this point, they still had not accomplished that mission. And, and from an internal perspective, they were feeling pressure that if they failed in this, the whole concept of airborne operations might be looked at a little differently and not utilized in the future. So that's one reason why they're feeling this pressure. The second one is that a substantial portion of the 82nd Division are on the western side of the Mer de Rey. And it has been three days by the time they start attacking on the 9th. So they know that those forces on the western side of the river have not been resupplied with ammunition or medical supplies, and they've been in combat for three days, and now they're almost out of Schlitz. So they feel this pressure to get to them so that they can relieve them and get them resupplied. And the third one is this pressure from higher. The Corps commanders and all the way up through Bradley, are pushing from the top saying, we need this, get it open. Because at this point, the follow-on forces that are coming ashore are just building up on the beach, and they have nowhere to go until Lafayette and that causeway are open. And so there's all of this pressure from above saying, hey, get it open. And so all three of these factors are acting upon them, and it makes their decision relatively simple for them. We've got to take it. We need it. So that's when they decide to go right up the middle. And it was, let, let us be clear, there is no mystery to them as to what was going to happen when they started sending troops across that causeway. They'd already seen it with the Germans, so they knew it was going to be bloody. And so Gavin looks around and he looks for the biggest group of guys he has and the freshest. And you know what? That's the, uh, the third of the 325th. And he calls for these guys who are fresh to lead the assault. And he has two cobbled together 507th companies in reserve. He also looks around, gathers all the arty support he can get to suppress the Germans, uh, arty and, and firing from Cotney, so that the 325th can move towards the village under that suppression. The third of the 325th, that is his... Uh largest, most complete, least expended unit. Uh, but Gavin's got some doubts about its capabilities. And so he, he he's also planning to use the rest of the 507th to kind of push them across uh, if when they start to waver on the causeway there. But most telling, I think, is right before the attack, Gavin fires the third of the 325th's battalion commander because the guy had expressed pessimism about the attack. And in Gavin's mind, it's okay. If the guy leading it is saying it's going to fail, it's just going to become a self-fulfilling prophecy and it's going to fail. And reasons like you described, Tony, they have to have this open. That's why they were dropped in. Mm. Gavin's going to make the call and go with someone else. The third of the 325th, they ran 600 meters across the causeway and in to Konkani, and they established a foothold on the east side of the causeway. So they're there. Because that causeway is a shooting range. Who's ever on it is probably feeling like a clay pigeon. So Gavin sees the, the attack stalling because the suppression isn't there any longer. So he orders a platoon of tanks forward to push across the bridge and the causeway. That lead tank 
hits a U.S. mine that, that was left there, and it blows off its track. It blocks the causeway to the rest of the tanks. So now we've got the Germans machine gun fire sweeping the causeway. The U.S. forces are starting to get bottled up again. Ridgeway and Gavin both end up on that bridge. They understood that this is the critical point in time of the battle. It doesn't matter how many G German divisions are ahead or how many machine guns are, are sweeping this bridge. It doesn't matter how many U.S. tanks or men are on the beach. What matters is this bridge, this moment, and this tank. Ridgeway himself helps clear that tank, and Gavin pushes the rest of the tanks across to help and clear Continent. That's the critical time of this battle. Then the battle is close among the hedgerows. It's very chaotic. There's several cases of blue on blue. They keep that tide pushing forward, basically bum rushing through. And they, after the capture in that causeway in Continent, the 82nd clears two more villages to the west, and then the 90th Division can push through them and complete the process of cutting off the peninsula. Exactly, Kevin. Even though the fight at Lafayette isn't as well known as other battles in Europe, I think to the 82nd Airborne, Lafayette is kind of sacred ground. I guess in some ways for them, Lafayette is like Iwo Jima is to the Marines. I suspect if you're in the 82nd Airborne today and somebody says Lafayette, they understand what happened. When you look at Lafayette from the 82nd's perspective, they absorbed more than 600 casualties in those fights. So that's more than one casualty per meter of bridge and causeway. And I think more significantly than that is you can you can see the importance of the causeway and the bridge by this simple fact. More than 50,000 American troops crossed that causeway within a couple of days of its capture. It was the choke point that had to be taken by the U.S. to move off the beaches and secure the Cotentin Peninsula. So I would just say that the book is worth reading for this portion alone. And I can't speak for, for the people listening, but I would suspect most people will learn something new when they read this book, especially the portion about Lafayette. That stat on tens of thousands of troops coming across just shows that the 82nd got, got the job done there. All right. Well, that was a good discussion. Why don't we look at wrapping it up for this evening? Tony, you got a shout out? I got a video sent to me by another Marine, and it was really, I guess the only way I could describe it was quite heartwarming. As you know, Bill, you guys have been receiving quite a bit of rain lately, and uh, there was a car that was, appears to be stuck in one of those bridges that's over by Arlington, right by the Pentagon. There's a bus in front of them, and out of the bus come six, six Marines, and they're in their dress blues, and they all run through... It looks like about 18 inches to 24 inches of water to get to the car. Now, you have to remember they're in their dress blues, um, and anybody who's worn those, you're a little hesitant to jump out in a beating rainstorm to go do something like this. So they get out of the bus, they run to the car through 18 to 24 inches of water, push this car out of its predicament, and it wasn't looking good for the car, by the way, and the tourists get to go on their way. And then they head back to the bus and take off. So after looking at the video, I realized those guys got to be from 8th and I, the barracks in Washington, D.C. And as it turns out, I called some a person I know who works at 8th and I, and I said, hey, are those your guys? Did they do that? And they said, yeah, they're the burial detail. Evidently, those guys had just completed five funerals 
at Arlington that day in this beating rain that was coming down all day. And then they got out of a bus and pushed a car out because they needed it. So I thought it reflected very well in the Marine Corps themselves and 8th and I. So really well done to those Marines. And I don't know, it just made me feel good to know that there are people out there that are willing to go out there and do the right thing, uh, even when it's going to be a a huge pain in your dress blues. So good for those guys. Kevin, how about yourself? Yeah, I kind of noticed in the news also a a historic moment, not getting a lot of attention outside the uh, military research circles. Raytheon Tech, uh, with some others, successfully tested a scramjet hypersonic missile that they launched from an aircraft, and that missile reached speeds in excess of Mach 5. Uh, guys, this is a game changer. It's going to render some current missile defense systems obsolete. Give you an idea, that Tomahawk missile that we've used uh, quite a bit over the last decade or two has a max speed of about 550 miles per hour. So this is five times, actually about seven times faster. Also, the, uh, they said this prototype was made using 3D printing. So science fiction is here. Shout out to Raytheon. I would just say that the Chinese are probably very excited about that because I'm sure there'll be a submarine launch version sometime in the future. So it'll make their defense of the South China Sea, which they've claimed for their own, to be that much more enjoyable. Bill. Well, um, I'm going to suppress the geek in me uh, and end the discussion on hypersonic uh, missile systems. But uh, I do have a shout out. It's for our friend Chris, who is approaching the 100-day mark from from a bone marrow transplant. And that's sort of a milestone in terms of success for these types of things. So uh, we're still thinking of him and uh, pulling for him. So that's what I've got this month. Good for Chris. Well, you know, Bill, this is our 11th episode, and we are rapidly closing in on our first year of doing this because the 12th episode would kind of represent that. So that's kind of cool. And next month for our 12th episode, we will review James Hornfisher's book, Neptune's Inferno. This book covers the naval battles surrounding Guadalcanal. And the author describes the fights between the U.S. and Japanese fleet in the waters around Guadalcanal in such a way that really brings those fights to life. This is a really rich topic for discussion. I think it should give the three of us more than enough to talk about next month, so I'm very excited about that. So we hope that everybody joins us as we discuss what it's like for 8-inch shells to go ripping through the superstructure of one ship on the way to their intended target. I think everybody's going to enjoy this a lot. I think it's one of the best books that uh, we've reviewed yet, and uh, we should have a good time doing that. I just want to say to Kevin, welcome to the show, and we're really happy you're here, and I think you're going to be a great addition. And as always, Kevin, just so you know this, save yourself some money, and support your local libraries. Welcome to the show. Uh, thanks, thanks, Tony. I really enjoyed doing this with you guys. I, I appreciate the invite and looking forward to, to Neptune's Inferno. Our discussion tonight really only skimmed the surface of this book. There's so many other points to ponder regarding the leadership and the decisions that were made. Uh, really can only encourage folks to read the book themselves. Bill, what do you think? 
no, I agree. Good discussion. Great book. So just kind of close things out uh, for everyone else out there. Please remember, we'd love to hear from you. Contact information is on our website. Just Google Odin and Aesop, uh, all one word. And uh, you can reach us by email. Also check out the blog there, leave comments. And uh, if you wish to make a donation, there's a PayPal button you can use right there. But we'd love to hear from you. Keep the feedback coming and stay on the net.